0: In this edition of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about baseball and some pop culture with author David Krell and his latest book that's come out titled Do You Believe in Magic? Baseball in America in the Groundbreaking Year 1966. David joins us to tell us all about it in just a moment. Hey, this is Darren Hayes. You've probably heard me on the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch. Well, welcome to my journey of learning more about sports history. And we're going to do it by learning about the great athletes and the uniforms that they wore as they both tell a lot about the games that we love and have watched so much throughout most of our lives. These are the chronicles I'm going to share with you on what I've learned through my journey in the Sports Jersey Dispatch. Hello, my friends of sports history, this is Darren Hayes of the Sports Jersey Dispatch Podcast. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to all things great in sports history. And welcome to another edition where we get to talk to an author that's wrote a great book on sports history. Uh, Tonight, our topic is baseball in a particular year, the year of 1966. And we have a, a gentleman that has wrote the book, the author, David Carell. The name of his book is Do You Believe in Magic? Baseball in America in a Groundbreaking Year of 1966. Uh, David, welcome to the Pigpen. Thank you, Darren. It's good to be with you. Yeah, David, this is a, you know, by chance uh, meeting here, I was doing some research on uh, a topic I was looking into. I was at a historical society and one of the the ladies there had mentioned that you had done some research and said it was about baseball and sort of got us in touch and kind of a a great connection. And, you know, I love the the year, the 1966, that's the year I was born. And I love the topic with baseball history. So I'm excited to meet you and uh, hear what you have to say. Likewise. Now, why don't we start off, David? Everybody has their own story and their own connection to sports and sports history. And you know, why don't you tell us how you became uh, connected into, to baseball to the point of, of writing a book about it?
1: Well, I, I came to baseball, as many kids did in the 70s, through Little League. But regarding a, a book, I actually had an idea for a book in 2010. Uh, in 2008, I was laid off like so many other people and I started taking a writing workshop and I had an idea for a book that didn't really, uh, it wasn't viable. A lot of agents had an interest in looking more at the proposal, but no one was interested in representing me. So I had this other idea about the Brooklyn Dodgers and I'd written an article for a law journal wow. about a case involving the Dodgers and I took that article as a jumping off point point. And what I did was uh, create another uh, history of the Brooklyn Dodgers through history, uh, uh, oral history, uh, what I could find in archives. And I was able to get a, a publisher. And uh, the rest is history. Well,
0: why don't you give us the title of that book, too, and uh, if people want to look that up? and
1: That, that book is called Our Bums the Brooklyn Dodgers in history, memory, and popular culture. Uh, back in the day, the Dodgers fans referred to the team as bums when they couldn't play well. Uh, they, in that Brooklynese, Dem bums, those guys, stuff like that. And it was a, a pleasure. And I had so much fun with it. I said, well, maybe I can uh, parlay this into some other things. And I edited two anthologies about the Mets in popular culture and the Yankees in popular culture. Uh, and then decided on years. Uh, My first book about a year was 1962, Baseball in America in the Time of JFK. And I had such a great time with that concept that I said, well, let's see what else hasn't been talked about. And 66, the the book you referenced, Darren, uh, really is unexplored Uh, as a year, not only in baseball, but in history. There was a lot going on. We'll talk about it, I'm sure. And I wanted to do more than just Uh, The Orioles and the Dodgers, I wanted to give a slice of life. What was life like in 1966? Of course, this is not the book I wanted to write. If, If I wrote the book I wanted to write, it would be 700 pages. I could do 100 pages on Batman and Star Trek alone but you you have to be economical you have to cut all the fat off and i had to make some tough choices about what to leave in and and what to throw on the cutting room floor as the uh as our as our friends in the film industry tell you but you probably know this every writing workshop every class every lecture they all say the same thing as rule number 1 be prepared to throw your darlings overboard and you have to throw a lot away for the, to sacrifice for the story. And I have, it it made for a a streamlined book. I think you'll have fun reading it. It's a great beach read, take it to the beach, take it to the backyard, take it to the pool. Uh, It'll give you an idea of what life was like in 66 in baseball, things like Vietnam emerging, the Vietnam war starting to become very concerning to Americans in 66. Of course, in 67, it escalated even further. Uh, Governor Ronald Reagan. Reagan won the governor race in California. That set a standard for conservative politics. Uh, You had two novels, Valley of the Dolls and The Source, which were uh, epics, really. Uh, Valley of the Dolls was controversial for subject matter about drugs involving Hollywood. And it's nothing like the movie. So for people who have seen the movie and they haven't read the book, the book is much more serious. It's not camp. It's not parody at all. Uh, the the other uh, book, the source by James Michener, is about uh, the history of Israel and Judaism from ancient times all the way through the mid-60s. So that gives you a background and a backdrop for things like Angel Stadium debuting and Mo Drabowski setting a record for being uh, a relief pitcher with the most number of strikeouts in a World Series game, Game One of the '66 series. Sandy Koufax retiring, the epic Drysdale Koufax salary holdout. Marvin Miller becoming the head of the players' union, and that was not unanimous. We could talk about that later. Uh, it would. Uh, some people didn't want Marvin Miller. They didn't want a union guy. If you're a veteran. You think that you have a great relationship with the front office. You don't want some guy coming in and separating you from the owner. You'll get scared that he'll put the kibosh and sacrifice you for everybody else. When in fact, what Marvin Miller did was uh, he listened and it was really about the quality of life. It wasn't just about money. It was about, do you get any days off if you go on a 10 day road trip? And you come back on a Monday. Do you play Monday night? Things like that. As long as
0: we're touching into baseball here a little bit and the economy, what was, uh, I know from a football standpoint, you know, players in the National Football League had to work an off-season job to because football wasn't uh, enough sustenance to have a livelihood uh, for, to, so they could survive all year. Was baseball much the same way with their salaries?
1: I think that was starting to dissipate by the mid-60s. I know in the 50s, they had off-season jobs. uh, But with Koufax and Drysdale, they really set a tone. Now, of course, they're the best pitchers in the game. So a journeyman pitcher is not going to get anywhere near that kind of money. But it did shake some people up. And with Marvin Miller becoming the union chief, uh, that was really a one-two punch. One had nothing to do with the other. Drysdale and Koufax walked out on their own. They said, we want more money. And the, the problem, Darren, as, as you may realize, for Buzzy Bevesi, who was the Dodgers general manager, he's looking at Drysdale and Koufax and he's saying, geez, what happens when my starting outfielders join together and walk out? What happens when it's a double play combination? What happens when it's a pitcher and his and his desired catcher? You have how many catchers on a ball team? Three. So if you have your number one catcher and your number one pitcher who walk out, what happens then? So this went on for a month. And from the people on the Dodgers whom I spoke with, they wanted them to get the money. First, you need your two best players, right? You're not getting back to the World Series if you don't have Drysdale and Koufax. That's a given. Number two, if they got more money, the odds are everybody would get more money down the road. A rising tide lifts all boats. So the person who actually intervened in that salary holdout after a month was none other than Chuck Connors, TV star, former member of the Dodgers organization and the Cubs organization. And he had a pipeline to the front office and to the guys. And you'll see in the book, there's a picture of the press conference where they announce a detente a reconciliation and it's Bavese, Koufax, Drysdale and Connors. He's not in the front row. He's not on the sideline. He's right there with them. He was a key component in bringing this together because if you're a Dodgers fan, Southern California, you're feeling pretty good in early February when this bomb drops in late February, you're really worried. And this did not go on for a couple of days. It went on through the end of March. So every day, big headlines in the LA papers and something needed to happen. And fortunately for Dodgers fans, Chuck Connors happened. That had to
0: be pretty traumatic uh, for the Dodgers. You know, you have the, the two top pitchers in baseball at the time, I'm assuming with, with Koufax and Drysdale. And uh, you know, you have, you know, this salary demands and wanting more money. And like you said, they're, they're nervous about everybody else paying. Nuts. Did that uh, spread to some of the other teams in major league baseball with, with them doing that
1: or. Well, c- certainly Marvin Miller's, impact was the really what lifted everybody down the road. And, uh, you know, Kurt flood people have read about and, you know, down the road you had Reggie Jackson commanding a tremendous salary for his time uh, when he joined the Yankees and it, it took some time. I mean, that the, the money these guys make now, Darren, is astronomical, even on a pro rated basis compared to what the guys were making back then. But it, it, if you're a fan, you don't really care. You know, if the ticket price goes up a nickel, a quarter, whatever it was in those days. Okay, well, that's what it is. Now, it's a totally different story. Some of these ticket prices are just astronomical. Um, But we live in a different world. We live in a totally different world.
0: Yeah, I think in in our modern times, I know we've sort of accepted it. You know, the the millionaires are asking for money from the billionaires, and yeah. uh, you know we're the, we're just the guys that are paying you know a couple hundred dollars to go see a ball game you know, at uh, right. any ballpark. But uh, you know, I know it's a different time, different uh, economic uh, structure going on there, so. Things are just starting to heat up in the monetary race. It sounds like in baseball, like they were with other sports. Right. Okay. So, you know, we know that, uh, you know, the rest of America with Vietnam going on yeah. was, uh, you know, it was a lot of protests. It was a very, uh, you know, polarizing uh, mm-hmm. event that was happening with the involvement of the United States in the war over in Asia. And did it have any effects on baseball? Was there any players that were uh, outspoken about it or, you know, to have a residual effect?
1: There were, I didn't get too much into that. I think that happened more in the late sixties. As I say, it escalated in 67 and 68. It was certainly on the TV news. It was in the headlines. You couldn't escape it. It was, the tensions were growing. I have a passage in the book about middle-class America and what would husbands talk about while their wives were playing Mahjong or Canasta and the husbands were playing Gin Rummy. Both 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 factions of the families are going to be gossiping. And then when the gossip is over, they're going to be talking about whose kid in the neighborhood is about to be drafted. Who, you know, who's 17 year old is on the verge of going to war. Uh, and all of a sudden your the talk about your latest business deal or what clothes are on sale, uh, becomes secondary. And it's a, it was a very sobering thing based on, uh, based on stories I've read. And I just constructed this, uh, this passage which could take place in anywhere USA, you know, any suburb in in America. Uh, so it, it was a very tangible concern. and it, it was interesting for me to go back and and read those articles in the newspapers and see those accounts. Um, we did not experience that in my generation. I'm Generation X. So uh, by the late 70s, war was a thing of the past. Basically, uh, it wasn't a daily occurrence. We didn't see high school kids going off to war after graduation. Um, So I I wanted to have that in there to remind people it wasn't just baseball or Hollywood that was going on that year. There was something very, very real and disturbing and tragic.
0: Yeah, that's uh, definitely well said. Now, you alluded to it earlier, and I know you you talk about this in the book, uh, some of the, the more uh, the lighter side of the, the 1966. Right. Uh, you talked about, you know, the TV show Star Trek starting right. and, and the Batman uh, series on television. So maybe, maybe you could speak to those
1: a little bit. Well, no one had ever seen anything like Batman. And remember, Darren, in the mid 60s, not everything was in color on television. Andy Griffith show wasn't in color for the first five years. Dick Van Dyke show ran five years, not in color. Uh, The man from uncle, at least one season I know of was not in color. The Munsters, two seasons, black and white, the Adams family, two seasons, black and white Gilligan's Island season. Number one, black and white. So color TV was still a bit of a novelty. And when Batman comes on the air in 1966 in January, it's like a comic book on screen, which is how they developed it. They, the sets were bright the the villains costumes were outlandish and it's really the villains who made that show the actors the character actors like burgess meredith and Mm -hmm. cesar romero uh, art carney Mm -hmm. david wayne victor buono ida lupino even uh liberace played a villain uh, and he was quite good Mm -hmm. so you, you had an outstanding array of character actors who really sold the, these outlandish characters to go with their costumes. And you had Adam West, who was just a, a stoic Batman, if ever there was one. And you had a G golly whiz Robin in Bert, played by Burt Ward. Uh, it was just a fun time. Now it was a novelty, but the novelty wore off rather quickly because by 68, the show was done. And yet it's still around somewhere. It's, it's still gonna be on TV somewhere. And for people who grew up in the 70s and 80s like I did, our definitive Batman is Adam West.
0: Oh, yeah, most definitely. And I I, I watched it in syndication just like you as a kid, and it was on every day, and you just loved it. And you talk about it being like the comic books. When you say that, I can remember, you know, when they'd land a punch, it was the big pow and the big right. words with the you know, cloud would come up over top of the screen. It was right. fantastic. It was uh, very uh, appealing to the eye and your sensory perceptions. And, you know, some of the uh, the humor, maybe I didn't get it as a kid, but God, exactly. I just love to watch, you know, the Cape Crusader and the dynamic duel, you know, going and, and fighting these, these villains. So it was, a, it was a great time. It was, uh, it was a very entertaining show. So uh, the Star Trek was another one of my favorite, the yeah. original series. So when As a, a child, I, I loved that and I uh, really got into the characters.
1: Star Trek lasted three years and eventually spawned a billion dollar franchise. We still have iterations of Star Trek.
0: So the yeah. original series was only three? Only three years. Three wow. Okay. I didn't realize that Batman only two years and Star Trek only three.
1: Batman was like two and a half. I mean, technically three seasons. But uh, so if you count January to May of 66 as one and then the next two full seasons, it was off the air in 68 and uh, Star Trek was 66 to 69. uh, But it it just got a tremendous um, popularity in syndication. And then the convention started. And people had this great love of star trek and the philosophy of star trek and the politics of star trek and the religion of star trek and the philosophy of star trek and it goes on and on and on and you had these um these trekkers who uh, really devote themselves to analysis not of the trivia or the minutia but the characters i mean there's some wonderful literature out there about a spock a leader uh, what kind of a leader is Kirk? Who's better, Kirk or Picard? Uh, some really interesting character debates. I didn't have a chance to get into them too much, but I did address that it, this was a future uh, that we all aspire to, that we, you know, everything on Earth was taken care of. There was peace on Earth. And now we were part of a bigger federation of planets and going out and exploring strange new worlds as the. Theme song uh, dialogue indicates uh, when Shatner gives his his preamble to the theme song rather, and it was you watch you watch them now as an adult and you get a totally different dynamic. I, I get so much more out of this now, uh, and you realizing having been born in 1967, realizing how much of an impact this really must have had in 1966. Because no one saw anything like this at all. I mean, what a fun time for television. You had the space race, you would have Star Trek, and then you would have Larry Hagman playing a bumbling astronaut in I dream of genie. And I mean, people can talk about Robert De Niro and Lawrence Olivier and Tom Hanks. For Larry Hagman to do I dream of genie and genie goes off. He has he he doesn't have a success like that again until Dallas in 1978. And he plays the most Machiavellian, deceitful, duplicitous, backstabbing character on television. Mm-hmm. Totally believable. Makes you want to root for him. You wanted J.R. Ewing to win. Mm-hmm. And for him to go from Tony Nelson to J.R. Ewing, that's an actor. And I think he's completely underrated as an actor.
0: Oh, I I totally agree. Now what you were just saying uh, when you were talking about the the monologue at the beginning of Star Trek? Yeah, I had this. Uh... A conversation with one of my with my youngest child who's 18 and doesn't appreciate television back in that era that, that yeah. we grew up in and the 60s are, are part of that but you know everything the, even the theme songs they told a story you right. know uh let me tell you about a man named jed uh yeah. you know things things like that the uh, gilligan's island a three-hour tour you knew it was going to go on and yeah. you became part of your culture and you really wanted to watch that opening theme song because even though it was repetitive of every week you watched or every day if you watched it in syndication you knew it was going to be said and you started yeah. memorizing it or you know maybe just being uh immersed in it so much it became part of your memory and you knew it you know almost as well as you you knew your your name at that point yeah. but uh it's something we we don't have anymore I, I that i'm no, aware I, of on a television we show.
1: don't and, and a big reason for that darren is we have so many choices and you also have the choice not only of content, but of when to watch it. So, if your favorite show in 1966 or 1976 was on at a, a certain date, Tuesday night, 8 p.m. in the late 70s, Happy Days was on. You had to be in front of the TV to watch it. Otherwise, you'd have to wait four months for a rerun, and maybe even the summer. So, we have we don't have any of that. You can watch you can watch on your on your iPhone. And you when Happy
0: watch. Days was done, you got to watch Laverne and Shirley. That was another
1: necessary. You're right not after set for the night, you you were right. set. And in the eighties, some of that time shifting happened with the VCR. But I I really think there was something special about being able to talk with your friends, and then when you got older, talk at work the next day about L.A. Law or uh, Hill Street Blues I, we talked about in high school, and we've lost that. There's there's no unifying cultural through line for this generation for this country anymore and and the shows that used to get 25 million viewers and get canceled because that wasn't enough when what does a show get now four million and it's Mm -hmm. and it's still on the air Uh, it's it's a totally different world and you and i are, are also beneficiaries darren in that we grew up in a time where the shows were rerun so we knew Gilligan's Island, Green Acres, Gomer Pyle, as well as the generation before, because they were on every day. It's what you watched when you went home from school. It's what you watched if you had to stay home sick. The, the, it was all reruns. Now, one thing that I learned in six, about the 62 book and the 66 book in, in terms of my research was I was not exposed to dramas, because they just weren't rerun. I had heard of them. I had heard of Route 66. I had heard of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Mm -hmm. I I had never heard of of some of the other shows, like Saints and Sinners was a show I I researched for 62. But Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction, um, those were ingrained in my memory because I know for a fact that I watched them. F Troop, the Munsters, the Adams Family, they were always on. Be- Bramas, bewitched and <laughs> Bewitched, dramas yeah. less so. Star Trek on Saturday afternoons, but you know things like I Spy. I I watched I a few episodes of I Spy to do research for this book. It was an amazing revelation. The production values were sky high. I mean they they really filmed in, in exotic locations. That costs a lot of money, whether it's now or then it's going to cost a lot. And uh, that show only lasted three years. There was a a real uh, short window uh, from the mid to late 60s for some of these shows. Man from U.N.C.L.E. was four seasons. I Spy was three seasons. But they captured that Cold War atmosphere of the 60s. Uh, James Bond was still fairly new. Doctor No premieres in 62. So, of course, Hollywood wants to rush to put out everything they can for the spy genre, same thing with the space race. Uh, My Favorite Martian is another example of a, a space genre uh, offering. Even Archie Comics had the man from Riverdale, which was a takeoff on the man from uncle to capitalize on the spy genre. So by the by the 70s, I think that was starting to dissipate a little bit, the romance of, of James Bond, even though the Bond movies were, were still quite popular. You didn't have that uh, that urgency in culture, based on what I saw, uh, to to reflect the Cold War, and a lot of that might be because the Cuban Missile Crisis was still prominent in people's minds and and some other factors.
0: Now from my memory, and maybe you recognize this too, it seems like back in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of the television programs either, you know, we were big on variety shows in America. Yeah. So every everybody had their own variety show. Yeah. And westerns, it seemed like you know, every every night there was a western yeah. on of some kind, which you don't see much of anymore and uh it's just kind of an odd how the the trends go as they as they do on television
1: private private eye shows also really went by the wayside uh in the last couple of decades so we but then you start to see things like um a sherlock holmes takeoff, like monk uh, a brilliant detective who has an issue Uh, with monk he was ocd there's a new show called will trent where he's uh, i believe he's a consultant for the the uh, Georgia Bureau of, of Investigation, and he's dyslexic, but he's a brilliant detective. He solves the case. He sees things that, that other people can't see. He'll solve the case in a day. Um, so you, you see those genres where uh, Hollywood will, will say, well, give it to me in one sentence, and it's Sherlock Holmes if he's a doctor, house. Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes if he's a lawyer, We'll call that something else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then of course you had the real Sherlock Holmes take off with elementary, where they bring Sherlock Holmes into the present day. And Watson mm-hmm. is his sober coach instead of his uh she becomes his assistant, but she starts off as his sober coach.
0: Interesting. Okay, so, so let's go back into 1966. So you, you touched on a little bit, you know, with uh, you know, Larry Hagman's uh yeah. Col- Colonel Nelson being working for nasa in Cocoa beach major so, nelson or major nelson i'm he, sorry he major nelson oh, it's been a few uh years since i've watched it but yeah so, excuse me he, uh, said he but, started as a captain and then he got promoted That's right. That's right. So, okay. So space was a very big thing going on in the United States at the time. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that uh, affected American?
1: Well, when, when Sputnik goes up, which was about the size of a basketball, that satellite in 1957, everyone's getting nervous, including the white house. So president Eisenhower authorizes NASA and uh, who was Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson. So when Johnson becomes Kennedy's VP, Kennedy puts him in charge of NASA. and where does he put the NASA headquarters? Texas. Of course he's a <laughs> Texan. And under Ken- under Eisenhower and then under Kennedy and Johnson obviously uh, this space program really propelled. Uh, there were five Gemini missions in 66. And those were the two man missions getting ready for the three man Apollo missions. And this was breaking news each and every time I talked to people for the 62 book who told me that uh, teachers would bring uh, TV sets into the gym so they could watch John Glenn's launch. And the kids had to rush home for the splashdown. So this was a time when like, this is definitely what you were talking about with your friends. This is definitely what you were talking about at the bar and in the conference room for a meeting uh, before court. If you're a trial lawyer, this, this was America. You, you, you could not escape it. And there was a national purpose. There was a national unity in that most people based on my research were for the space program. Now, Darren, obviously there were some critics, Some people say, why don't we put that money to social programs, right? Why don't we use it to feed the hungry? Why don't we use it for medical programs and so forth? Those are all valid opinions. But if you're going to build a complex rocket, you're going to need working class folks to build it hundreds, if not thousands Mm -hmm. at, at the aerospace companies. So this put people to work, um, I, I, same same thing with stadiums. uh We could talk about Angel Stadium in, in in a bit, but the the space race was incredibly important as a as a point of national unity. The the presidents could just not let Russian Russian astronauts or cosmonauts, as they were called, beat us to the moon. It, it was just a matter of national pride and security.
0: Yeah, no. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting and we just talked about you know the western theme yeah. was in the united states you know in our movies and our television as space race and you know i it probably is what affected i imagine the uh houston colt 45s baseball team becoming the astros is that well
1: i i think that was inevitable they they wanted to reflect a uh, a modern culture and when i was a kid i always thought mistakenly that Astros was short for astronauts and that was probably what the team was called in the 60s and they just did away with that and called it Astros the same way you rarely hear anybody call the Mets the Metropolitans they're always called the Bats and I, I was mistaken I, I still think astronauts would have been a much better name but uh, Astros is what has been used since the mid sixties. Well,
0: when I was a kid, I thought they were named after the George Jetson's <laughs> dog. So that tells you where my mind was. <laughs> so, yeah, so just uh, you know, even our cartoons were you know spacey oh, yeah. at that point. You know well, the, the Jetsons, well, the, the Martian on the Flintstones, exactly.
1: Uh, Gazoo, exactly. Right, right. There, yeah. there, there was something in the in the culture where it would be reflected, and of course, with cartoons, you had Boris and Natasha russian spies right so mm-hmm. it, it was embedded it would, you're if you're seven years old you're laughing at the cartoons you don't understand that there's something going on that's bigger than you but it was it was around you It was an aura and as you got older you would sense oh that's what that was about oh i get it we're against the russians that's the thing okay
0: Or or some of us uh, talking on a podcast at 57 years old are just getting enlightened about this. So thank you for that. There you go. Never really thought about that, but you're right. Boris and Natasha were sort of... uh... Embedded into you know our culture, huh? Very mm-hmm. interesting. So okay, so we have you know all this going on. We we are you know entertained in the movies and you know, all these brilliant TV shows are coming oh. out that are new and exciting and uh, color television and you know baseball. You know, is is baseball suffering because of all these other entertainment uh, venues going on? Or is it- I,
1: I I don't think so. But w- one thing that was interesting uh, was the building in Anaheim of. Angel Stadium. The Angels did not have a home. They had been in Wrigley Field in LA for a season and they spent uh, the next four years at Dodger Stadium, splitting the stadium with the Dodgers. And uh, Jack Dutton is someone I write about in the book and he's an unsung hero. Every project of this scope needs a champion. Uh, Jack Dutton was a self-made millionaire. He was a lifelong Anaheim resident proud. I had the opportunity to talk to his daughter and he wanted Anaheim to be a a destination and the stadium would do that. Now, what happens if you have a stadium 81 times a year, you have home games. That means 81 times a year, the visiting team's press corps is writing Anaheim in the byline or mentioning it in radio and TV broadcasts. So that's advertising right there it was no longer just the place where Disneyland is. So you had the stadium. Then I believe the convention center came soon after and Anaheim grew as a uh, a destination for commerce, for residences and so forth. Um, I wanted to chronicle him because it's easy to get information about Gene Autry, who was the owner of the Angels and write about him. But I, I really thought it was important to Chronicle and spotlight an unsung hero who really was an advocate for this. Uh, Mo Drabowski is another fella I mentioned in the book, as I said, and I had the opportunity to talk to his daughters, um, and they really gave me some insight uh, regarding Mo. He was a veteran on a team of youngsters, uh, he was a prankster, he was uh, a, a gentle prankster. He would put goldfish in the opposing team's water cooler. <laughs> so he he really just wanted to get a laugh. Um, what happens in, in game one is he's called into relief quite early. And as I said before, he set a record for strikeouts. Now, here's where it gets uh interesting, Darren. Uh Mo was a, a journeyman pitcher. He he was a starting pitcher until 66, and then they made him into a relief pitcher. Now He didn't have a Hall of Fame career, but he had a Hall of Fame day. Seven years to the date before that game, seven years to the date, a member of his family passed away. And I don't want to go too much into it here. uh, For for one reason, I'm going to choke up about it. But for another reason, I'd like people to discover this in the book. Uh, It was a tragedy, what happened. It was an absolute tragedy. And I believe that if you believe in heaven and angels and karma and the supernatural and friendly ghosts, you will be reinforced and you will be uplifted by the story that's in the book. If you don't believe in any of those things, I feel sorry for you. But I do hope that it will push you a little bit, if not a lot, if not over that line. Because he, I, I my jaw was wide open when they told me the story. When his family told me the story, I said, I got to put that in there. I have to write about that. And there's also a poem about it that I wrote uh, at the end of the book, after chapter 12, keep going. And that's not the end. There's a poem where I chronicle his life, his career, the tragedy, and the World Series game.
0: Okay, well, David, you've wet our appetite. So why don't you go ahead, let's tell the the title of the book again and where folks can get a copy of it.
1: Do you believe in magic, baseball, and America in the groundbreaking year of 1966? You can get it on Amazon. I ask that if you do buy it on Amazon, uh, please consider giving a review after you read it.
0: Okay. Well, very well spoken, sir. I really enjoy the story uh, that you, you told us tonight and you've really wet our appetites to, for more. And uh, we're going to have to go get that book and uh, you know make sure we read it and learn all about what's going on in this uh, little myster- mystery. You dropped us at the end here with this story. So uh, thank you, David Krell. Uh, thank you for joining us today and to, uh, for talking about baseball and the summer and the year of 1966. So thank you, sir. Thank you, Darren.